0: Hello, welcome to Kind Mind. This is Todd, and you might hear some fireworks in the background because it's 4th of July. Happy Independence Day. Whether you're celebrating with alcohol and explosives or just taking it easy, I hope you're safe and taking some time that you deserve to be with family and recharge. I just want to give a brief introduction to this episode which was recorded last November about the yogic philosophy of ahimsa, which translates to nonviolence. A friend of mine, a colleague at work actually, suggested it to me in the same month that I gave the talk. So I just reflected on this for a few weeks and spoke about it and recorded it at our gathering and I'm sure there's so much more to be added or amended. I mean, I probably even think differently about about the ideas I was sharing, but it was just a, an initial exploration to this vast philosophical concept. I called it at the time, the talk, the first virtue, because it's one of the foundations of one of the oldest religions on the planet, Jainism. And there are three qualities that they emphasize with action and trying to avoid harming others at first i started thinking about how society is so violent according to the cdc one in three women in america are victims of violence from an intimate partner i just thought how devastating that statistic is one in four are victims of severe physical violence from a partner in their lifetime So there's just so much work that needs to be done, so much healing and so much transformation to become even just a decent society, reflecting on the history of this country and the history of civilization and contemplating violence. It it just makes me think how crazy it is that throughout human history to this day, whether Slavery and segregation and genocide of the indigenous peoples of the Americas to the plight of California farm workers, feudal serfdom in Europe, factory and industrial laborers of Asia today. That people born into wealth and privilege will have no problem systematically oppressing, exploiting devaluing, dehumanizing, and even stealing the lives of people, entire communities, ethnicities, races, or any innocent or simple group of people and profit off their misery until and unless those people organize and sacrifice everything, including their very lives, before history's oppressors will acknowledge them or concede anything at all of their excess, but not before reacting with brutal violence and terror. So, that is the context with which, on the surface, with which I want to analyze, but go beyond, because as human beings, we have to survive, and in that process of survival... We have to displace or trade the disruption that would happen in our bodies and we have to disrupt our environment in some way. So of course there can be different approaches to reduce this harm. I've experimented with more plant-based diets but even when you're eating plants you're harming the life of the plant or if you're eating certain kinds of vegetables you might be harming the lives of lots of smaller life, insects, worms, ecosystems in the soil of microorganisms. So it's difficult to avoid some harm. And And who do we harm, or what do we harm, and what do we not harm? There's a quote from Nietzsche, if you crush a cockroach, you're a hero. If you crush a beautiful butterfly, you're a villain. Morals have aesthetic criteria. And the Dark philosopher Emil Cioran also has a depressing quote. Injustice governs the universe. Each being feeds on the agony of some other. The moments rush like vampires upon time's anemia. The world is a receptacle of sobs. In this slaughterhouse, to fold one's arms or to draw one's sword are equally vain gestures. Historically, morality was in the domain of religion. Although most existing faiths claim their teachings go back to the dawn of time, we can understand that these belief systems have emerged and disintegrated like empires. However, scholars trace living spiritual traditions of the Indian subcontinent to the 15th century BCE, suggesting seniority at least among scriptures. The cornerstone of these and many other organized moral philosophies around the world is nonviolence. The word ahimsa comes from Sanskrit. It's also the very first step in the very first limb of eight limbs in yoga, five precepts of yama in Hinduism. So, this ancient virtue can also be found as a basis. For other maxims and codes around the world as attempts to do the least harm and to build a nonviolent society, such as the Golden Rule or John Stuart Mill's utilitarianism or Immanuel Kant's categorical imperative. Despite this principle being woven into the fabric of these social constructs, it seems so many civilizations fall way short of its purported vision. In this episode, I try to investigate the role of nonviolence today and the challenges or limitations. Violence is quite prevalent in nature, so it cannot be only a matter of living more naturally. However, nature, we could probably agree, is much more sustainable with its violence than that of mankind. And, like I said before, some modern thinkers assert that you cannot have life without death elsewhere, nor construction without destruction. So, what about these other life forms? Or the case of self defense, or war, or criminal justice, disease, mental health? Can society become nonviolent? It's sort of like trying to move all the students from one grade to the next and the limitations with education and mass, but as we'll see in this episode, the methodology for accelerating a nonviolent society actually can be violent, hence the violence of nonviolence. If there is a time to kill, then perhaps the important clue lies in Ahimsa's explanation in Jainism. So, guided by simplicity, necessity, and intention, perhaps one can aspire to cultivate a mind with less and less desire to increase suffering, while adopting a lifestyle that harmonizes with the balance of the broader ecological community to which we belong. Well, I hope you enjoyed this episode. Thank you for making time to listen and engage with these topics. Wishing you all the best. Peace. I called it The First Virtue for the title of this group because it goes so far back in terms of a foundation for morality or religions. And it is a central theme in Indian religions that go back to 500 BC and beyond, like Hinduism, Buddhism and Jainism. And it is the whole foundation of the religion of Jainism the preeminent spiritual leader of jainism is known as mahavira which means great hero and he was perhaps a contemporary of the buddha but this nonviolence is known as ahimsa in india and again we've you know we've talked about some other words that have this alpha privative or the prefix of a or an which implies negation so Ahimsa, in Sanskrit, means to kill or to harm or to injure. And, and therefore, the ahimsa implies what comes after. One grows in this quality of nonviolence after knowing no other way but to be hurtful and destructive. And when we pull this over into philosophy and moral philosophy, Many thinkers struggle to find a way to exist as a human being without causing some harm. Our very existence requires maintenance and upkeep that complicates this picture. How do we eat? How do we survive? How do we live? How do we have homes without killing, without destroying, without disrupting the ecosystem around us? And now, I mean, we're in a situation where I think if you ask anybody, do you think we're headed in the right direction? Right now, I don't don't think people see it that way. Whatever they think about the past, right now feels like we're in a precarious situation going forward. That's with society, that's with the environment, that's with things like climate change. Something about the way that we live and relate to each other and to the natural world seems unsustainable. So I do think that there is a lot to be gained by going back into some of these ancient concepts and seeing what we can draw out of it. Because if we think that nonviolence is just a matter of being more natural, other complications arise because in nature you find all kinds of violence. Animals are very violent towards each other. There's aggression and power and dominance and rape in the natural world and something we're going to consider tonight is the difference between killing and cruelty or harming and cruelty there's a quote from Dostoevsky's book uh, Brothers Karamazov I wanted to read that speaks to this people talk sometimes of bestial cruelty but that's a great injustice and insult to the beast A beast can never be so cruel as a man, so artistically cruel. And then the Ivan characters talking about how some invaders treated the people they were conquering by killing the babies and tossing babies up in the air and catching them with their bayonets or getting a baby to grab hold of their pistol like you would a finger, only to get it to smile before shooting the the infant. So, you know, just these kind of acts, uh, you know, like seemingly evil acts and how much thought goes into it. So his point was that, you know, a tiger would never do that. It would, it would maul you, but it would never plan like like that. This idea of... Nonviolence in Jainism hinges on a belief that there's a soul in all life. This is actually a little bit different than Buddhism, because you may remember in the past, we said that there's a doctrine in uh, the Buddhist teaching about not having a self or anatta. So if there's no self, then there's really no soul that you're harming. So we'll come back to that in a second. But in Jainism, they do believe that there's a soul in all life. Not just that there's a soul in other living things and other people, but that it's also your soul, one soul or the same spark. So basically, this becomes a principle that evolved around the world as a golden rule, that idea in the in the Christian gospel, even not to do uh, to do unto others as you would have done unto yourself. And in Jainism, it's because you are actually doing it to yourself. You might not see it that way, but then this gives um, like a little bit different framing for harm or violence because we harm ourselves all the time, and we do it for different reasons. Reasons when we exercise, we're destroying ourselves and rebuilding them. There's a certain amount of harm that we uh, inflict on ourselves, or re- or restraint, or uh, discipline that could be seen as as harmful or hurtful. And we also do that with people we love, with our families, or raising our children. We set limits and we try to train that way and it's, it doesn't always make them happy. So the idea here though is that when a person's becoming more adept at this quality in Jainism, they're moving towards liberation. So it's a path towards enlightenment. Mahavira is A teacher in this tradition, he's known as the founder, but he was supposedly the 24th in a lineage of masters. He just, I think, helped spread this philosophy of nonviolence. His journey is somewhat parallel to the Buddha's. Maybe the stories are intertwined due to mythology. And I mean, you find a lot of similarities in different legends. But he spent 12 years wandering in the forest. I think the Buddha spent six years. And in his 13th year, he had a a great awakening. Along this journey, he's realizing a feeling feeling his soul or his spirit in more and more life. So he becomes more and more peaceful. And this becomes a path that he shows others can follow. And Mahavira was so peaceful and so simple, he had nothing. He had no possessions. He had no clothes, even. Supposedly, in the stories, he was just a wandering, naked ascetic. He never even took anything for his body. But nature in the stories would work with him to protect him, to care for him, to look after him. But he was largely indifferent because he just felt his spirit everywhere. In Buddhism, with this philosophy of no self, it's not that you're harming yourself per se, when you commit acts of aggression or cruelty, but that there is a, a karmic imprint from it, which means what like, goes wrong comes wrong. So you're still harming yourself in the sense that you're contributing to a formula in the cosmic law that's gonna come back to you. So therefore it doesn't make sense because you're just going to create more trouble for yourself. But where this gets complicated, I think, is in modern times. Because in those days, it's kind of nice, does that (laughs) ring? In those days, (laughs) there wasn't industry. There wasn't factory farms. So a person could live harmoniously with the environment. And even in Hinduism, in the the scriptures, in the Vedas, you may know that India is pretty famous for having a vegetarian diet but in the Vedas it it talks about a non-vegetarian diet and then there's also prayers for eating meat and there's animal sacrifices and that evolves after some time to eating meat but having a ritual meaning it's a recognition of the ebb and flow of the universe and I think this is similar to other Traditions around the world and native beliefs in this country about how everything's related. Everything is my relations. And if you take something, it's not that you do it out of cruelty. You do it out of a sense of intention and necessity. And you might do it with a prayer or with a sense of gratitude, even even if it's just a feeling. When I was in India, I started to see you know other monks living this way. And it was inspiring. It was just like a moment before plucking a fruit from a tree or a flower to take to a temple. There would just be a moment of recognition that I'm disrupting the environment, but I don't know how to exist without disrupting the environment. And this also speaks to two radically different ways that we try to understand morality in the world generally speaking, in the East and in the West. In the Western world, coming to uh, the Americas, our sense of right and wrong is large, largely predicated on what's known as deontological ethics. D means not, and ontology is the philosophy or the study of what's presently existing or being. So therefore, deontological ethics was Immanuel Kant's idea of prescribing morality when you're not in the situation. So he talked about being in like retreat, maybe in a quiet space, maybe in a forest, maybe in a cabin, sitting at a fire and thinking what you would do in a particular situation. Therefore, it's not presently existing. And if you think about how this has evolved in our country, when there's a crime, when there's a moral issue, when there's a car accident, what do people do? They dispute or debate, or they try the case, either amongst themselves or in the courts to see, is this right or wrong based on what we already thought about what's right and wrong? in a given situation like this. In the East, again, I'm just speaking generally, morality is based more on what's known as virtue ethics, which is about the character of the person. So when two people um, have a conflict, it would be an opportunity for both people to show in public their nature, their personality. And because of the philosophy of Buddhism, which is no self, It has filtered through the different cultures that if you act out of self-interest, you're not really displaying restraint and nonviolence. You're acting out of what's false, your sense of self, your ego. And you would see that that's not the superior man or woman. The person that is able to restrain themselves and act peacefully historically would be seen as the morally superior character. But there is still another way or a third way, and that is more like in Chinese philosophy um, or the wisdom of Taoism, which somewhat equates ethical action to spontaneous action. Which means it's not about proving anything or displaying my character or trying to follow a virtue like nonviolence or truthfulness, but just being able to uh, recognize our ignorance. I don't really know anything. Uh, There was a French philosopher in the 20th century, 20th century, Jacques Derrida, who developed a philosophy known as deconstruction. And he has a word in French, différence, which is spelled with an A instead of an E. It emphasizes that our words, our language, and this is also kind of building upon some of the ideas of Wittgenstein in Germany, that we're basically navigating knowledge with semantics. So, a word like dog doesn't actually tell us anything about a dog, it only tells us that the word is different than cat, in another word, and that has some reference in the environment. The dog is kind of different than this thing, but, it, but the word itself and no word actually tells us what a dog is. And so the defer of the difference means we just keep deferring the knowledge. I don't know where the dog is, but I know it's not this. And anything that you want to define is always in reference to some something else or somewhere else. I put this on the podcast recently. But if I ask, where are you right now? Where are we? We're here. Where is here? How do we define it? Well, we're at the homestead, 1854. But where is that? It's in Plano. But where is that? It's in America. Where is that? It's on the Earth. Where is that? It's in the solar system. And pretty quickly, where's the solar system? It's in the universe. only a few steps and all of a sudden you've run out of references and uh, are forced to admit I don't know where the hell we are (laughs) (laughs) therefore in Taoism specifically uh, that ignorance that unknowing uh, what Derrida calls an aporia which comes from a Greek word meaning a conundrum I don't know. I don't know anything. Therefore, the Taoist practitioner, and I think I, I, um, I see this sometimes in some of the books I read about different indigenous wisdom, there is something intuitive or spontaneous that cries if a person didn't think they know. Because all of the attempts to impose morality on a situation, as well-intentioned as they are, ultimately become violent in of them themselves. The violence of nonviolence. How can you make a situation nonviolent by being violent? This person did something wrong, therefore, they should be punished. And the punishment is violent. In its crudest form, it's something like the death penalty. But another way that we cope, according to Derrida, with this ignorance is by binary thinking. Binary thinking helps us to cope with the lack of references that we would have otherwise. So we just go, it's left or it's right, it's white or it's black, it's up or it's down. And then another problem arises from the binary thinking, which is a privilege for one over the other, white over black, male over female, young over old. Even something as simple as, or something seemingly as obvious as equality and inequality. It can never be as simple as it feels or as it sounds. Because if you took a family of seven, two parents and five children, if there was equality in the family, five sevenths of the decision-making would be by the children. But most people would say that's, I'm not going to do that, but they will go on and on preaching about equality is everything and yet you're neglecting the wisdom of inequality not that the world should be unequal or anything like that just that it has its place unless again unless that person not being hypocritical would 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 say no no no, even in that case i give equal say to my toddler (laughs) well then your toddler will be really unhealthy and you'll end up engaging in violence with your child by just letting them have a diet ice cream. You know? The teacher and the student, is it equal? Should I get to equally decide uh, in my classes when I go on to the next lesson, what my homework should be, when I'm ready? Or if I, if I really want that relationship to be beautiful, should I be a little bit humble and d- defer to the, the knowledge of the teacher in that subject, whatever, whatever it is. You, you see what I'm saying? That's a tough task. at your high schoolers, trusting their teachers. <laughs> 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 Any teachers in here? That's <laughs> <the> not right. <front. laughs> and, and so maybe there's some insight here for some of the problems in society where we want to get on the right side, But that is built upon a premise that we know something that is fundamentally true about who we are, why we're here and where we are and where we're going and where we truly came from. And nobody knows that. And we close ourselves off from the wisdom of the unknowing, from the aporia and from the possibility of spontaneous ethical action. Like, as taught in Taoism. I was recently looking at this book called Original Wisdom. And the author, Robert Wolf, is talking about going into these uh, remote places in Asia, in, in this case, in Malaysia, and spending time with uh, a, a tribe there that's lived isolated from modernity for hundreds or thousands of years. And they got to know each other and and he started to study the differences in the way that they related to each other and to time. There would be a thief in the village, but nobody would punish that thief. It's just nature's thief, they would think. The idea though in the West would be like, well, then everybody will will become a thief, but will they? Or can you steal if you're not inclined to steal? So there's just, there wasn't that kind of attitude, but another interesting thing happened that he talked about in his book. When he would come to the community in the jungle, somebody would meet him at the edge because he needed to be guided in. And they would be there at the exact moment he arrived, even when he had no way of notifying them. And he would ask the person, how did you know to come give me? And that person would explain to him, I didn't know. I wasn't even thinking about you. There was just a a voice that said time to go here because of the natural uh, state of of the way of life. And so I think we, in our attempts to impose our will onto the earth and the future without realizing that we've totally cut ourselves off from this kind of connection and interdependence and unity. And we're seeing it play out as our own self-destruction, which circles back to the original idea in Jainism that the spark of the divine is in everything. This difference between cruelty and violence. In Jainism, the idea is that you could cultivate a mind with less and less desire to hurt. And what you will do or how you behave, who knows what that will look like person to person. But there may be harm that you engage in. The question of war, the question of self-defense and so on comes up. But somebody who I think embodies nonviolence, they may be in a war, they may be killing, they may be defending themselves. But to what degree do they want to be artful with their cruelty? That's something that we can slowly start to remove. And it starts in a very subtle way. Somebody has something that we want, and the wish in us comes, I hope that doesn't work out for them. Somebody wrongs us, and in our mind, the desire that that person should be punished, it immediately takes over your thought and your body, and you start to inhabit revenge or jealousy, and it totally pollutes or corrupts your energy. But the idea that we could, like in Ahimsa, that we could slowly let go of that or release that, that actually opens up the possibility of acting spontaneously. Because now I'm not overwhelmed by rumination or revenge or regret or remorse. I just stay reconnected and re-inspired by the present moment and in this way, I think about practicing nonviolence in the same way that I make music. I think nonviolence is an art in and of itself, just like cruelty is an art. But we all have different capacities when it comes to being nonviolent. We're not all going to be virtuosos like Mahavira, or the Buddha, or even Martin Luther King or Gandhi that could organize symphonies of nonviolence. That's not the point. The point is we know we love music we know that we need music most people and you want to sing to it you want to dance to it you want to work to it you want to make love to it you want to create to it and it's okay that you're not going to be a famous musician or maybe you won't be a musician as a occupation similarly we make food, whether we want to be a chef or not, or whether or not we consider ourselves great cooks, we know we have a right and we need and we want to make food and to eat. So similarly, we can experiment and create nonviolence around us in our thought, in our words, and in our actions in our own way. Therefore, it doesn't make too much sense for me to get so entangled with how somebody else should be nonviolent. Uh, and the whole idea here, again, is self discipline. That's why it has the, the word that connotes negation or absence of. And in music, we seek out musical stars and talent. We have game shows now where we find the talent, as strange and silly as that is. But why can't we also seek out and ennoble nonviolent prodigies? Alice Walker said something like, we need to teach our children, younger and younger, the true power, the true value or wisdom of nonviolence, that you don't have to act from a place of revenge, jealousy, that you can feel and validate these things and you can release them. And then you do what you need to do to survive. That's a that's a totally different subject, I think, than the wish to harm, the wish to hurt somebody, the the prayer for somebody to come to ruin. I think we all feel it at one time or another. I, I know I, I have, and it can just be so hard to release. But it's toxic for us, right? And. Mahavira, I think, was showing this is a way up the mountain. It's not the only way. In yoga, it's the very first precept of the very first limb of eight limbs, Ahimsa. The first limb of yoga is Yama. Yama is the god of death, so Yama means what not to do, what to kill, or what to end, what to let die that's lying, that's stealing, that's hoarding, that's uh, desiring to hurt people, ahimsa. And then the next step is what to do. Surrender to the things you can't control, do some penance, some self-discipline, do some austerity, do some self-study. Purify your mind and heart, that's saucha. Be content, that's santosha. And those form the foundation of yoga. And people skip over this because there are other aspects of yoga, meditation, uh, asana, the postures. But I love this idea that the very first precept is trying to be kind, as kind as you can, starting with yourself. We can be so cruel to ourselves. We could say things to ourselves that if you said it to anyone else to about them, they'd be done with you. You know? But... We do it over and over to ourselves. And I think Patanjali, the uh, author of Yoga Sutras, where we get all of this philosophy of yoga, I think he precisely and purposefully chose the word limb for the ashtanga, which means eight and limb, as opposed to eight steps, uh, or eight rungs of the ladder of yoga, because it's not Again, this is more of a Western idea, methodical, linear, step-by-step. The limbs of a person mean you can reach me through this hand, through this hand. If you touch my foot, you've touched me. If you touch my head, you've touched me. The point that Patanjali was making in yoga was that this is a way to unite. And that's the meaning of, of yoga, uniting with your spirit huge is the root word, you could get there through ahimsa, like Mahavira. Or you could approach it any other way, in, in the eight limbs. You could meditate and meditate and meditate and awaken. But we're all different, and that's why there are different limbs. Because some people can't be still. Well, you don't need to be still because there's other ways to move and be present. Um, you can, maybe you can even say that, that the animals are amoral you know, because the lower brain doesn't really have morality, or our midbrain, which we share with the other mammals, but not all the other mammals have the cortex that we have. So the, the midbrain is in all of us. It's basically trying to fulfill the biological drives of survival, eating, drinking, sleeping, companionship, sex, and so on. But in the cortex um you have a mechanism that can mitigate or assuage the the lower propensities and it's not to say one's good or one's bad it's just that there is a a communication happening and in the higher cortex is where we get ideas i would emphasize ideas like morality like consequences and things like that, like the the deontological ethics. What would I do or what would the right thing be to do in a situation like this? I think the Buddha made uh, a distinction between nonviolence and pacifism and that they're not the same thing. So there may be a course of action in situations like this. And I think this also applies to war. One of the the, the main epics of India is the Mahabharata, which is all about a war. And the idea that there are situations where you cannot avoid harm. They're going to harm you or they're going to harm your family or harm the environment. And by not doing something, the harm increases. By doing something, some harm increases. So there are situations where there is just no way to avoid the harm. But if we come back to the idea actually where you touched on with the origin of the word violence in english tracing that back to latin what did you say yeah yeah Uh, and the verb of this is violare which meant to dishonor In, in my experimentation with this i think there's a there's a limitation with the western ethic and the eastern ethic that there could be a right way to act every time this comes up. See, in the Taoist way, uh, or in Derrida's Aporia, there's no way to know because we don't know anything. But if you take this idea of violare to dishonor, that helps me because whatever I do, whoever I harm or whatever I kill, I could do it in one way and I could do it in another way. I mean, I remember working inpatient in the hospital and having to restrain some patients 20 years ago. And it's not, for me, it was not a pleasant thing to be a part of. If you could go through the day without having to, to put your hands and forcibly hold on a patient, you would, I would prefer that. But not everybody was like that. Some people like, enjoyed the the thrill of being able to take somebody down. So, I mean, I saw that as not very honorable way to carry out the necessity of safety. So remember when I was saying with Jainism, intention, simplicity, necessity. And we can do those things without the attitude of cruelty, without the the attitude of violation or violarity. I, I mean, I, I've I've learned this in in Indian books that I've read. Like uh, I'm talking about Indian American Indian, um, like uh, Black Elk Speaks uh, in in the Lakota tradition that you you might kill an enemy and there would be a ritual, or you might kill the the prey and there would be a ritual because that made made it honorable to the great spirit, or that made it honorable with the environment. Like I know I'm doing something, but I don't really know what else to do other than defend myself or defend the family or or feed my family. But I'm not doing it without remembering my ignorance. And, And that's what makes it a ritual. And it could be like, then a feeling of gratitude or harmony or a deep awareness that my time will come too. I will also have my return. And maybe the more that I can do whatever I have to do to survive by honoring every other life, you know, maybe the great spirit will, you know, show me that kind of grace. Um, And again, I'm not saying that to imply that nature isn't violent, that there's not violence in nature or that it's just a matter of being more natural or something like that. There's only trying to point to the, the complications with the idea that there can be a strict right and wrong. We have intelligence or intellect. That's the thinking mind. We can think about things and we can make a plan and it may work and it may not work. We have instinct that will guide us in those primal situations and that has worked for thousands and thousands of years to keep us alive and then we have intuition so intellect is the mind instinct is in the body intuition is in the source or in the spirit or in the soul whatever you whatever you believe and it's not that use one don't use any of the others but it's i think it's helpful to recognize how much we're addicted to thinking and how hard it is to just <coughs> let go of, I, I got to think about something. We actually get addicted to a new thought and, and the programmers know this and the advertisers know this. So the, the headlines are always something to get you thinking. Well, what, what, where is this going to lead to get on that train? You know? And that's why I say, I feel like we're just kind of cut off from our natural intuition and when I hear stories about these peoples that have existed in their way of life for so long, you know, it just makes me so sad that we don't have access to that. But, but the one comforting idea uh, behind all that is, if there is intuition, there's still intuition. It has clouded over. Otherwise, it was never intuition. It was something in a book, and therefore it was just more intellect, more ego. But if there really is intuition, then it's there whether it's clouded or not. If there really is a sun, then it's there whether there's clouds or not. And it could be covered over for millennia and someone can always bring it forth again. And maybe that's what we're going through collectively. Can a society become nonviolent? I don't think so, not overnight. The only way that you can try to get a society to be peaceful is through violence. And that is the methodology of, uh, of the civilizations to force the, the collective to change. And the only way to do that is through violence. But a person can become nonviolent. A person can, and that can have a ripple effect it can plant seeds for the future. All of the tools that we think about to curb violence, I caution people to think about how violent the tools can be and how they can be weaponized in the binary thinking against the unprivileged. That the ideas that uh, would make culture more respectful, more equal, it gets weaponized in the way that the powerful want to weaponize it. Who the elite want to, when they want to wield the corrective instrument. Uh, how How can the weak and the poor and the vulnerable decide when it will be used and how it will be used? And can it be used against the top? No, of course not. So anyway, it's just things to think about that we can't control that. and. And therefore, that might be like a a bit futile to get too wrapped up into. But we can always practice releasing or removing our desire to be cruel. And that actually, I think, affects everything, even though we may not realize it or we may not see it at first. Because we're interrelated, we're interconnected. We create an aura of... um, non-judgment, openness, spontaneity. As also reflecting, as you said there, how my wish for harmony has led me to be cruel in my past or led me to be dogmatic with whatever it could be, with what I think is a simple life or what I think is the right diet, but then it would lead me to think negatively about somebody else, thereby engaging in mental violence. In, maybe in its subtle form, not like wishing harm on anybody, but thinking negatively about somebody is the, the seed of hurting people. It goes from there to wishing, I just wish this person would get their lesson, but you're starting to want to harm. And you can sometimes see that in people who are very rigid with their morality. The, the religious morality or sometimes the dogmatic morality of a person or a group will be weaponized also against people who don't live that way, thereby creating another paradox. The very thing you're trying to create, you know, you're disrupting. And this comes, circles back to the idea of really not knowing who we are but really uh, bowing down to that unknowing, that cloud of unknowing and and surrendering somewhat, that ego of trying to know, of wanting to find something that you can hang your head on. You just do that little experiment of where are you, and you quickly realize how wild it is that we're just somewhere or nowhere. I was asking, you know, when you have these thoughts or you have a rumination or you have a worry, sometimes it's compulsive. Sometimes it's like an earworm, like a melody of a song that you can't get out of your head, even though you don't like that song. (laughs) But the first step, going back to steps, I think is just noticing, having awareness. The more we cultivate awareness, the less identified we are. The real problem is the idea that the thoughts and the emotions that we feel are not part of nature, that they're independent of nature. It's, this is me. And that I could have a negative thought. I'm a negative person because I'm fused with it. So in uh, acceptance and commitment therapy, we talk about defusing from thoughts. Here are a couple of strategies that I find to be the most powerful for me first one is treating your mind like a suggestion box, because truthfully speaking, all thoughts really are nothing more than suggestions from nature. And if I had a big box of suggestions of what to do with the kind mind gathering here at at the homestead, read them out loud, do this, don't do this. I mean, they would start conflicting and I wouldn't be able to honor them all. And some of them might go, that's silly. This one—that's a pretty good idea. I'll save that. You know, so basically, you're you're noticing through awareness, and you're realizing that you're separate from the suggestions. They're coming from your history. They're coming from your parents. They're coming from your your culture. Today, I was talking with people about um, cultural beliefs. I was telling a group that uh, I lived in. Uh, in Europe and in Asia and in different parts of this country and there are things that we take for granted that simply are arbitrary or untrue uh, somebody was saying yeah there's different gestures and you have to learn what they mean in other other cultures um, a, a guy in the <coughs> military said he was deployed to a country or stationed in a place somewhere in Asia he said if your foot was pointed up could be a sign of disrespect. And he was like, it's hard to remember all these things. Like, I can't remember which way my foot's pointing if I'm just sitting down. And I said, don't we have that too? You gotta be careful if you scratch your nose not to scratch it with your middle finger. That means absolutely nothing in most of the world. And that's the finger you should scratch your nose with in Asia. The finger you want to avoid using around other people is your index finger. Because this is the finger of blame. That is the equivalent of giving someone the middle finger in India, pointing at them. It's just arbitrary, right? When I first landed in Calcutta, it was like one in the morning because of a delay. And I needed to find the cab. And first time in India, I'm alone, middle of the night. I don't know what to really expect in a massive city like that. A group of people... Waiting outside the airport, start going like this to me. So I think, oh shoot, nobody wants me to come near them. <laughs> <laughs> what, is <this? laughs> well, what is it? Am I outcast or, or something? <laughs> and so I talk to somebody, somebody else, getting off the plane. I'm like, is everybody shooing me away? And he starts laughing. They're not shooting you, they're they're saying, come here. <laughs> I'm like, this means come here? And he explains yes because you know you're like pulling you closer how do, how do you do it and i guess we do it like this <laughs> it's the same exact thing but the palm, palm up and uh that means go away and and even you know spreading to parts of europe in italy you know if your palms up and you're you're know, flipping someone off like that like, get, get the f out of here right so, So there's just things like this that uh, we take for granted, that we we don't realize aren't true, like unequivocally or universally. So suggestion box, and, and you'll find like, oh, you know, that's my mom, that's my dad, that's my past, stuff like that. You get to decide what you want to buy into, and this is the next one in diffusion, buying your thoughts. Don't believe everything you think. You go to a grocery store, there's a million items in there, but you don't come out with a million items. You saw it, you passed it, or it passed you, but you let it go. Why can't thoughts be like that? Yeah, the thought's there, but I don't buy it. This first thought that sounded really prejudiced, that's culture. And so it's there, but that's not my value. That's not my virtue. So I, I'm not going to live out that thought. We could accept ourselves a lot more, I think, if, if we could decide, or if we could have just awareness like that with the thought. Passengers on a bus, you're the bus driver and you've got all kinds of characters riding. Um, or as Rumi said in the poem, The Guest House, <clears throat> every morning there's a new arrival and it's unexpected. And a final one that you won't find in Diffusion that I particularly like, I try to, when I'm more meditative or contemplative, I try to see my thoughts or or more so ideas or images in my mind as oracle cards because I don't know the next thing I'm going to think about. So it's a mystery. But the deck is there. What will I pull out next? and if you have any experience with tarot you could get any kind of card you know it'd be dead card it could be scary card the upside down card and then you know like a good reader is somebody that can help you find meaning in it for spontaneous ethical action okay what you know what wisdom is there in this thought doesn't mean it says anything too deeply about who I am, or that it's it's prophetic or anything like that. Uh, but I think the, the best kind of readings aren't like making predictions. They're just like, so you know what you know. What do you feel when you connect with this energy or this image? When you think about that intimidating character or whatever it is. So, anyways, that's, yeah, I think that can help a lot of us. The main thing is to remember that. Our thoughts are like clouds. When those clouds gather, they form weather, which is like our mood. Mood is built on thoughts. Weather is built on clouds. Enough clouds come and it creates a front. Climate, what weather does over time, climate is like personality. If you try to tell someone my personality, you say, I don't know, he's open-minded, hopefully. <laughs> That doesn't mean that if you find me in any moment, that's what I'll be doing. It just means that you think if you're around him enough, that you, you'll probably get a dose of that. Or, or, or on the flip side, you know, he's kind of rude. But will I be rude if you just happen to spot me somewhere? Even people we think are mean. It's just like climate. Would it be accurate to say, you know, this part of Illinois is... Yeah. It's like sunny and 60 at the end of November going into December. No. So you can't trust climate. I mean, you can't trust climate as a way to determine what it's going to do today. But all the while, the sky is like consciousness. We say that the sky is gray, but the clouds are gray. If you could go past the clouds, the sky is always the same. And that is the the insight to be experienced by noticing thoughts. Meditation or I should say mindfulness starts with paying attention to things that are safe. Like, Oh, I can, you know, watch the birds for a minute and I can feel the breeze. I can look at the snow or the trees and then I can watch my breath. And then I can look at my thoughts. And in time, everything becomes the object of observation. And the thoughts then aren't too different than other things happening in nature. And you are less identified with the thoughts and the body and the sensations, all that. And you, you're more connected with presence and awareness. Uh, Kim, you want to share something? Um, I was gonna ask. So, if you think about Taoism and like the kind of the yin yang symbol, and so every so like we like as a community like double down on being like non then somewhere is a group doing the exact opposite, right? So, how do you think about that? I think that makes sense, but I also think that. Well, if you look at the the Taijitu symbol, it's got how many parts? Four. Yeah. So the, the paradox of I really want to be nonviolent, and some more controversial uh, teachers in the 20th century, like Osho, would criticize the nonviolence of Gandhi saying, but Gandhi will not hesitate to um, harm himself to his fasting. So in his desire for the nonviolence in the, he has to balance that with a certain amount of fasting. So there's some seed of violence there. Uh, I'm not saying what I believe about any of these things, but there's a fifth part of the symbol. And that is the circle. It's not really recognized as a part because it's kind of invisible but it is in a circle right and the circle is thought subtly to be the containment to be awareness or to be just the, the presence the unknowing presence or the aporia I don't know but there's I just perceive this swirling stuff Cyclical. cyclical circular there's no side to a circle there's no left side really of a circle or right side there's no true up or down on a circle and what was i saying before referencing uh that, that the binary thinking is just a way of coping there's a there's always a competition between the yin and the yang within ourselves, within the society uh in the perennial uh, revolution of the pendulum of everything as we move right the the momentum is building to go left we don't see it we don't realize it same with your life as um, you know when your body's unhealthy it's building momentum to be strong when you retreat you're building up the strength to go ahead and when you sleep you're recharging to be active When you're active you're building up the momentum to collapse so there's this this pendulum that's all the time going back and forth and we think that one end could defeat the other or as i said in the principles of polarity that we feel like one end of the pendulum could win the right could win Uh, wrongness could win evil could win and we get really obsessed with good and evil you know, people so desperately want to think that they that evil can always be an explanation for something bad. Um, and in the debate with, with uh, something like mass shootings, can we blame mental illness? Can we not blame mental illness? As if no matter what happens to your brain, there's still a morality that supersedes everything. If I get in a car accident and have a concussion, kind of go, well, you know, I still have my morals and my principles, so I'm not going to see blurry right now. Uh, I, I just think it's it's way more complex than that. But I think that that's the secret of the symbol, that there's a circle holding everything and there's no pairs of opposites. We have seen many studies of how people can behave seemingly really, really badly given, um, you know, a set of cognitive dissonances uh, that are a paradigm that you can put people through, like the, the electric shock experiments, what was that the Stanford prison experiments and things like that. So yeah, and, and nature versus nurture, again, if we think of that as a as another binary uh, way of understanding life. Don't we find that people privilege nature over nurture? I'm not saying everybody, but, but the idea that if it's more natural, it's better. That can happen in the mind. But again, that can't solve the problems of violence because nature has lots of violence. The way so many things happen in nature are very harmful or violent or raw. And if you ask people, you know, is that what you want? When, when we're trying to be more natural, it's probably like, well, not entirely that. So basically here in Nature and Nurture, that there's something beautiful about nature and there's something also beautiful or meaningful about the, about the way we evolve and how intelligence is an emergent property of the universe. So emergent property means, again, with with coming back to violence, that there are scales of existence. Did Mahavira know there were microbes on on his body? You know what I mean? Did, Did the Buddha know there was bacteria? Maybe, you know, but I don't know if enlightenment means that you automatically can see all the microbes. But the point here is that we don't really think that that's a big deal, killing bacteria, killing them by the millions committing genocide of an infection with an antibiotic. thats like dropping an atomic bomb on your stomach, you know? But then there's, you know, there's these kind of organisms and there's viruses. It doesn't seem too wrong to kill a virus, right? Is a virus even alive? And then there's plants and then there's animals and then there's humans and then there's intelligence. And emergent properties are ways of scaling the universe. They're not necessarily true or false, but we live in a reality where we can't see the other side of the universe and we can't see the microbes. So again, we're just kind of floating in some purgatory. It may say something about virtue. Like maybe there's a value in prioritizing how you harm. Like if I have to harm a bacteria over letting the bacteria kill a human, you prioritize something in the scale of emergent intelligence or you think about this the consciousness that we see in life forms one way to define it is as a capacity for suffering i heard you all know harari explain it that way the author of sapiens i thought that was really interesting and that says something about the other life forms how much can this life form suffer i don't think we always know but we, we certainly can you know see signs of suffering in the animals I see it. You see signs of suffering in people. And to feel compassion for that is, is a quality in um, in these spiritual traditions. Sometimes reading, again, in that original wisdom book, how violent we become at the end of our life with our attempts to prolong our life. We'll take all kinds of medicines. We'll go for very harsh interventions or surgeries. or Even when we're not in a life-threatening situation, but the urgency with uh, with which we feel we need to resolve the the issue, that that becomes a paradox, where we become more and more aggressive with our healing, and, and and he was saying at the end of the life of a person's life, it was just a joyous occasion where you just started celebrating and encouraging and and praying for the person who gets to go over to the other side. So 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 much of the violence. Is predicated on this idea that we're not in not impermanent when you know you gotta go at any moment it really is kind of a game changer with how you decide to what, what kind of spontaneous action comes up um because so much of it is based on ego which is the idea that there's somewhere you can point to in the body where there i am and and i'll always be there and i can always exist in this way and so then naturally like a lot of harm flows from that